my name is Kira Shannon. I'm one of the co-founders of the Green Finance Community Hub and welcome to our very first Green Buzz podcast. For those that don't know us, we are a CIC and at the heart of what we do is a community benefit. And for us, that means helping net zero and nature-based projects to become more investable so that green finance can get to where it's needed most locally. Last year, we produced a green investment plan for Cumbria. Today with my guests, we will be speaking about the power of community energy, but we will be focusing on hydro. You may have seen one of the headlines today in the BBC, which said that the Bethesda Community Hydro Scheme in Wales cuts electricity bills by 25%. Surely this is fantastic news during this cost of living energy and climate crisis. Yet community energy only accounts for less than 0.5% of the UK's electricity generation capacity. And according to the Community Energy State of the Sector report, small-scale solar PV continued to dominate and all new hydro capacity was coming uh, from Scotland. But enough from me, let's hear from our expert guests. We've got Kate Gilmartin. She is the Community Energy Investment Lead, Rural Community Energy Fund for the Northwest. We've got Adam Cropper, he is the project director of Ella Green Hydro, and Sophie Paul, who was the former chair of Reading Hydro. So Adam, perhaps we can start with you. Um, although we plan to focus more on the community hydro, can you start by telling us what are the different types of hydro? I see today as part of the UK's mix, hydro is just 2%. That's higher than yesterday, but it's still only 2%. Over to you. Adam, thank you. Yeah, well, um, hi to everyone. And um, hydro comes in lots of forms and sizes. It always amazes me, actually, the different sort of projects that I work on, because you can be working on a five kilowatt domestic hydro scheme that's a sort of household type project. And then on the same day, you can be working on a one megawatt hydro scheme, which is a huge multi-million pound project, a big commercial project. But in practical ways, hydro varies also from the type of hydro. So you have high head hydro, where you've got a mountain stream and you've got an intake up at the top and a pipeline down to a powerhouse. And then you have low head hydro, which is typically on a large river on a weir. So a weir is a sort of impoundment in the river, a bit like a mini dam, could typically be three to five meters, for example, and you have a hydro scheme diverting the water around that, that drop in the river. And then there's lots of different turbine types, which I won't go into, but all they're doing is, is turning the um, potential energy in water into rotational energy. And then you have a generator turning the rotational energy into electrical energy. Okay, brilliant. And, you know, this has been around for a very long time. I mean, thousands of years, really. Yeah, water power has been, been in use right back through history, but the type of hydro schemes that we see today are also very old. So the technology has not really changed in the last 100 years. And in fact, um, I've been involved with old turbines that come from 1930s that have been refurbished and put back into action in, in 2020. So yeah, it's a very much a traditional industry, obviously now with the electrical controls and so on. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Adam. So um, this question for all of you, you know, it's a great pleasure here for me to be able to have three experts on hydro all at once. So why don't we talk about why you love hydro? 
uh, what to you is the greatest value of hydro? Kate, do you want to start off? Uh, yeah, fine. thanks. Uh, yeah, hi, hi everyone. Um, I think hydro is great because it's just so visible. People are drawn to, to, to waterways and seeing energy generated from a waterway is really exciting. And I spoke to one hydro developer about his scheme down in Totnes and he said that his one regret was that he didn't actually apply for planning permission to build a coffee shop next to the hydro. Because he said so many people will come and take a walk down to the river and come and look at the hydro turbine. I think that's an Archimedes screw, so it's very visible. Uh, you know, you literally watch it turning and it's there generating electricity from the power of the river. So I think that's part of the, part of the um, attraction. People love being by the water as well, whether that's river or sea. So it's a great place to go for a walk. And, and I think, um, yeah, it's about bringing people to the, the water ways as well. Great, thank you. Sophie, why do you love Hydro? Well, for very similar reasons to Kate, and in my experience it's a brilliant community focus. Ours is on a footpath, so it really brings people together, and in creating it we brought together all the skills in the community from art to engineering, and so that made it a very special project for people to be involved with long term. Okay, brilliant. Adam, over to you. Baseload generation, etc. Yes, well, I, I love hydro because um, it actually, I love it in the way that it's practical and it brings me close to, to nature. But also I love it because of its role to play against climate change, which to me is the most important thing that any of us could, could be working on with our lives. Very much so. And, and the role that it plays is much bigger than the kilowatts it gives, if you like, because the, the kilowatt from a hydro plant tends to be a lot more valuable because it tends to be when it isn't sunny and quite often is when it isn't windy. So it gives that diversity to the, the grid network that's so important. Hydro is quite a bit smaller in the grid than, than wind and is smaller than solar as well. So it's really the one that more is needed of. So yeah, I, I find it really um important to work on. Great and just picking up on that point so today if you look at the electricity mix I think hydro is 2.2 percent minuscule. Yesterday it was something like 1.76 so it really is tiny wee in the mix and then only 0.5 for, for the community side. So you know we will go on to discuss how can hydro uh, you know, become more than than it already is. But let's now, perhaps one of the issues could be uh, some concerns around the carbon and methane emissions. And this is more with the larger hydro projects, so dams. I remember getting lost, and this sounds so pretentious, but hey, um, you know, I, I did actually grow up in Hong Kong. But I, I, I went to try and find the Three Gorges uh, uh, Dam in China and, and actually got very lost in Chongqing. Uh, but that's a real example of a massive hydro project. You know, lots and lots of uh, people were displaced, lots of environmental issues. So I think behind these big hydro projects, you've got some of those issues. But for the context of the climate crisis, let's focus on the carbon and methane emissions. Adam, do you want to speak to that, Sophie or Kate? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a bit about methane emissions um, in reservoirs. So you, you've got different types of hydro. You, you might have a hydro where you've got an existing reservoir and an existing dam and the hydro is retrofitted onto it. So the reservoir would have been built for water supply and then you retrofit uh, a hydro onto it. And then you've got other hydro projects that are actually, there's a dam and a reservoir created just for the hydros, hydroelectricity. Obviously, if you're creating a reservoir from scratch, 
all that vegetation is being inundated, all that land that was there before is being inundated with water and that decomposes and it decomposes under the water. So it's anaerobically decomposing. And what happens is that uh, methane is produced and bubbles up the water in the reservoir, which has a, a very significant impact on, on climate change. Methane, I think it is it 25 times more potent than carbon? I, I forget the, the yeah, exact figure. Yeah, along those lines, yeah. But even if you've got an existing dam, when you put a hydro scheme on, often you're putting it on an existing pipe under the dam. And the point that you abstract the water from matters. So if you're abstracting water from the bottom of the reservoir, one, the water's colder. So that's got an ecological impact on, on bugs and wildlife that perhaps breed with, with water temperature further downstream. But also it's got less oxygen in it. If it's deep water, it has an impact on fish in a big way. And also it can emit methane because it's sat there under pressure at the bottom of the reservoir. The methane actually holds onto the gases. You bring it out uh, through a hydro scheme and then you're releasing some, some more methane. Right. Um, so even on an existing dam, you can have methane emissions. And very little is known about how much methane is lost this way, but it's a really significant issue for what I call large dam hydropower. Um, it's not something that we have much of in the UK, and virtually all the hydropower that I do is run of river, and most of the community hydropower that's being consented in the UK is run of river. But certainly it's an issue that needs to be dealt with because there's no point in creating uh, renewable energy if half of it is uh, being lost to more methane in the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. So the Climate Bonds Initiative, they have done quite a lot of this sort of taxonomy for, for what is green, you know, for all the different financial institutions. And they have recently brought hydropower into their scheme, but only very recently, and I think they've looked at this in a lot of detail. But I guess also the issue with hydro is the fact that it does use a generator. So it's sort of this sort of hybrid, multi-headed hydra, hybrid, obviously being clean and green, but then having quite a lot of associated carbon. And Adam, as you're mentioning, you know, the methane issue. But that's yeah, I've got one more thing to say on the methane, uh, which is a huge one, really, because I think quite a lot of people who are very environmentally minded, some of those people will go off hydro because of the large dams. And it's not just the methane, it's the people being moved out of settlements, flooded uh, land for wildlife and all sorts. But there's such a massive difference between one dam project and another dam project. I sort of tend to put in my mind a dam on a fjord in Norway somewhere might be displacing very, very little land because it's, it, they, they're so deep. And so you can have a, a huge hydro scheme with very little impact, whereas you have other dam projects, say somewhere like in Africa on very flat land where the, the surface area of the reservoir is, is absolutely massive and actually the power production is quite limited. It's just to the height of the dam. So there's not equals. Um, so yeah. we mustn't sort of think all large hydro is bad yeah. Yeah. Or, and we shouldn't think all yes. of it is good. Yes, but actually let's bring it to the topic of, of this uh, podcast, the Green Buzz podcast, the sort of the community energy side, which is obviously much smaller in scale. Are we talking going up to was it how many megawatts is community energy hydro? Kate, do you want to answer that? Uh, yes, I can do. I think I think actually is Reading the biggest community scheme, Sophie. Is that how many? Is that three hundred kilowatts? 
No, we're only 46. So oh. I think there are bigger ones than us. We were limited on planning on that. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, usually community hydro are, are around 50 to 150 kilowatts, um, in my experience. So quite small uh, in, in relation to, as, as Adam was just saying, kind of the, the big the big scale dam projects, which would be multi-megawatt schemes. And usually community hydro projects are on existing industrial heritage um, weirs. And um, they'll be fairly small scale rivers in, in terms of... Um, I think Reading's probably, is that the biggest river that uh, we've got Community Hydro on? Yes, it will be. And But the key thing to remember, I think, in terms of hydro mm. is its longevity. We didn't measure it in that before. It's once you put the system in place, you might have made some concrete that resulted in greenhouse gases. But that will last for decades longer than most other sources of renewables. And I see Reading Hydro is still being there 100, 200, 300 years time with minor repairs maybe to that original concrete work but the main things that will be replaced is the machinery which is a much smaller scale in terms of environmental impact. Okay great this is all brilliant so we're now going to talk a little bit about some of the grid issues and Kate we had a great chat about these yesterday do you want to talk a little bit about grid capacity and this obviously is not just about hydro. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I think at the moment we've got real issue with constraints on, on the grid. We have our transmission grid, which is the national grid that um, runs across the country and transports electrons from you know, Scotland down to the south. And then we have our local grid, uh, which is usually called the distribution um, grid, and they are operated by distribution network operators. Um, and at the moment, we've got issues with constraints on the transmission grid. So if you have a big project that you'd like to connect to the grid, if it's over one megawatt, then you have to get approval from the tr transmission grid, no matter where you're putting your project on. And at the moment, there's a big queue on that transmission grid. Um, in the north, it's about 26 gigawatts, which is considerable. And unfortunately for low carbon energy, that, that queue isn't, isn't prioritised according to what technology might be going on there. So, you know, diesel generators could be ahead of the queue in front of hydro or solar so it's kind of technology agnostic at the moment the grid and, and also it's not looked at in terms of when that installed capacity or that plant that's going to go on is going to generate it's just looked at in its total installed capacity so that's posing a lot of problems for people trying to connect low carbon projects at the, the at the national level i think the key for hydro it's a great opportunity for rural areas to have local generation and rural areas historically are you know at the end of the line we've used we used to have centralized gener um, electricity generation and then that was pushed out across our networks and the rural areas were the last people to receive those electrons so often I, I consider you know Cumbria's got a big ring main around the outside pretty much and then the rest of it across the rural areas like you know it's a bit like wet string really so it's, it's very limited and quite constrained so as communities are looking to move to low carbon technology whether that's heat pumps or whether that's electric vehicles they've got a big issue in terms of how constrained their grid is and I think this has really picked up with one of our rural community energy fund projects uh, with Melbrake um, community interest company at Buttermere so we're looking at a 45 kilowatt hydro at Buttermere um, and 
we're doing a direct cable, which is called a private wire, which will run from the turbine generating to a hotel, the local hotel, the Bridge Hotel, and they will be buying the electricity from the community-owned hydro. And so we talked to the hotel and we said, well, to maximise what you'll be buying from the hydro, it'd be great if you could look to put electric vehicle charge point in. And then we realised when we spoke to the grid operator that actually the, the area is too constrained to have an electric vehicle charge point. So that's just one charge point in one village in Cumbria. So we what we have determined is that actually once the hydro has gone in, we'll be able to put the electric vehicle charge point in and it will be actively it will be active network management. So the electric vehicle will only be charged when there's a hydro generating or whether there's enough capacity within the grid. So I think that really speaks to these local solutions, which will really circumvent the issue around constrained grid. Because historically, if the grid is constrained, then the grid will get reinforced. And that basically means we'll put new cables in, which will have a higher capacity. Obviously, that costs a lot of money. And that money gets socialised onto all our energy bills. But key to not just adding money to our bills, but it's also the time that takes. And if we have to reinforce the grid in all these rural areas to enable our net zero transition, then it's just going to take too long. So I'm a real advocate for these kind of local, smart, local energy systems where we've got hydro generating. And that's obviously matching the heat demand that will happen as people move off oil onto heat pumps. So it's a great match with demand. And we look at these kind of smart systems where we've got active network management as well. So I think the key for rural areas is to, you know, to, to get to net zero will be to look at these kind of local solutions and hydro will be a big part of that solution. Absolutely. But I love the innovation there with your, you know, the, the Batamir project thinking, this sort of multiplier, I guess, including the EV there. Um, but I mean, one thing that seems to be really missing is it's not yet possible to sell directly locally. So community energy is a bit of a, a misnomer. Of course, you're involving the communities, we'll hear from so, but it seems strange that you can't actually sell it locally. How far are we away from that happening? What, what needs to happen? So this is more of a policy question. So all of you, please do dip in on this one. Well, perhaps I, I could just mention, I think you mentioned already already the, the Bethesda project in Wales, and that's the energy local model. And in Bethesda, I think there's a 450 kilowatt hydro scheme and energy local worked with the local community and worked with the distribution network operator, which is SPEN, and said, OK, can we create a scheme whereby community members can sign up to an energy local club? And that means that they have to have a smart meter and they have to go with a certain electricity supplier. But when that hydro is generating, they'll be able to buy the electricity that's being generated at a cheaper rate. So with that system, you have to be on the same substation. So it's it's kind of looking at a kind of at a microgrid. That's quite hard to do because essentially, you know, we, we pay for the whole of the grid, not just the little bit of grid that we use. So from a legislative point of view, it's quite a, quite a tricky model. But I think that the, the solution at Bethesda would be a great solution if we could legislate to allow that to be rolled out to lots of communities so they are getting the benefit of that local generation. And um, the other example is Octopus. Um, they have something called the Fan Club, 
So it's just a couple of pilot projects where they've got two communities with, with single wind turbines. And similarly, people within a certain postcode could sign up to become a member of the fan club and they'll get a 20% discount on energy when they're, they're, they're matching their consumption with when the wind turbine is generating. I think it's 20%. But if the wind is over 10 point meters per second, so pretty windy, then they actually get a 50% discount. So again, it's encouraging people to use energy when it's being created and generated so it helps that local balancing so i think there's a myriad of benefits to to these types of local generation and consumption projects adam or sophie do you want to jump in there thank you kate that, that was a great answer policy any policy suggestions or we could think about that but let's go over to sophie because I was very inspired when I, I was introduced to Sophie and just the example of the Reading Hydro project, which has involved more than 150 volunteers, just really inspiring. So Sophie, do you, do you want to talk us through it? So the project as a whole, do you mean? Well, I think just, to, well, you could start off with, yes, take, take us through the journey. You were walking over the weir, presumably on a bridge, and you go, right, this needs to be a hydro project. Start there. But we sure. don't have too long, but try and bring in the sort of the community side. In the middle of Reading, five minutes from the train station, there's a path, a footpath that goes across the top of Caversham Weir. And walking across it one day, I was smelling the water and thinking, look at all that power, we've got to harness it. Told a friend, she linked me up with somebody else who wanted to do the same. And we all got together and it the project has snowballed from all those people getting together, but it's about specialists in an area being really keen and working as a team to solve problems. Because with hydro, there are a lot more hurdles to get over than with other renewables. And so you need a team of people who have capabilities in all different areas from whether it's working with the legislative side of things or the engineering side or um, herding people together to help. Yes. I think what I want to hear more about is it was a £1.2 million investment. We haven't really discussed the cost of hydro. That's another obstacle. But there's all sorts of costs down the line in addition to the arc. Is it called the arc screw or, you know, yes. some of the um, turbine technology? But, you know, £1.2 I think you had 750 investors. But I was particularly interested to hear more about how the share offer process worked. But then also... Now, how do you bring these people with you for seven years? That's hard work, Sophie. Apparently, they were digging ditches and doing all sorts of things. You know, really encouraging. It's a constant process of bringing in new people. But in terms of the share offer, we used share energy. We did a business plan to work out how much money we needed. And we wanted a focus on a large number of local people. So the share offer was biased that way. It was way oversubscribed because we're in a highly populated area with not a lot of projects like this. And we had to do a second share offer because the um, cost went up because we had some benefits from lockdown, but one of the negatives is the project was delayed into the winter. And that meant that flooding delays were a real issue and a huge cost. In terms of the cost of build, about half with this low head system, which uses Archimedes screws that we have, about half is the civil engineering putting it in and the other half is the machinery. And then you have extra expenses. We had to put in a fish pass as part of our planning agreement. That would have cost us 70,000, but it ended up costing us 15 because 
we had the community building it. So yeah, volunteers digging in the middle of winter in the mud and laying the concrete. So, and we built our turbine house ourselves as well. So you can save costs, but the key thing with the community in terms of cost is that you can make a project that is commercially unviable, which ours certainly was, um, possible because of all that free labor and determination. We only have a head of 1.4 meters, which is generally considered as utterly unviable, but we made it work, we're making it pay, and that requires a lot of people pitching in. Yeah, also, um, good leadership there, Sophie. Uh, Adam, do you, do you want to jump in a bit on some of the costs and things like that? Yeah, there's quite a bit limiting um, hydro investment in this country at the moment. And it's quite relevant now as well, because uh, obviously electricity prices are really, really high at the moment, and they've gone high quite quickly. And one of the sort of things that's happening is obviously hydro is now ramping up a little bit, but it should be ramping up greatly. Part of the reasons behind why we haven't got hydropower going in everywhere is because hydro projects need licenses and planning permission. So they need licenses from the Environment Agency, or if they're in Wales, that's Natural Resources Wales, and they need planning permission from their, their local councils. The licensing takes quite a long time. The actual official period of determination of a license is four months, but it isn't in practice. In practice, you'll apply for a license and it'll take a few months to be validated. So they will make sure that they are 100% happy with the application before they start their four-month clock ticking. And then there, there's the four-month actually comes to an end, and then they ask for an, an extension, because quite often there's a bit more to do, and they haven't quite made their mind up or something. So you can never really turn down an, uh, an extension, because if you're turning it down, you're not getting a license. That varies tremendously, but it is typically about a year. So that's quite a big delay and you've got quite a bit of, of work before that designing this, the project, etc. So you, you can easily be looking at two years and then a year to build it. So it can easily be three years. With community hydro, quite often it's longer. You've got to have your share offer and you've got to get a lot of people together. And some of the decision making isn't as quick either. So community energy quite often some some community hydros are quite often 10 years and Sophie's were seven years um so this isn't fast and this isn't reacting to electricity prices particularly effectively if you've got years to build so that's part of the reason hydro hasn't suddenly um grown really quickly there is another big reason which is a, a really frustrating reason and it, it, i'm sorry to sort of be reporting on it really and that is Back in April this year, um, the Environment Agency decided to increase the fees for applying for a license. So it used to cost £1,500 to apply for a license for hydropower. And now it costs um, between six and £13,000, depending on your project size. Um, but this is, this is quite radical. This is a serious cost to be putting up front when you you not haven't got spades in the ground yet. And if you imagine um, small hydro, where you've got a domestic hydro, it, it almost illegalizes domestic hydro because you, you're not going to, or, or a lot of small projects just aren't going to spend £6,000 on um, an application to consent. It's not even £6,000 to consent it because you've got ecology surveys and things like that to pay for. So... You know, that, that's often more than the turbine itself, if yeah. you're talking about a three kilowatt uh, yeah. domestic. And then, Adam, we were mentioning about the business rate relief as well. Uh, and I think in Scotland, isn't there a 60% reduction for at least another sort of 10 years or so? So, you know, maybe we should be looking 
more at what Scotland is doing on the business rate relief, just bringing it back to policy there for a second. Great, thank you so much, Adam. Kate, the British Hydro Association. I mean, obviously they've got quite a role there uh, with policy. What do you think they should be really advocating for? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I think the key part of lobbying will be around looking at existing mechanisms like the contracts for difference and trying to get those extended to include a broader range of hydro as well because at the moment contracts for difference is anything over five megawatts um, but really we want to see a stability you know strike price that's going to enable people to look at developing a longer term business case which means that they can invest in development and so if you've just said this is long-term investment into a hydro project to develop it and so much can happen in those years while you're trying to develop a project but if you have that stability in a contract for difference, then that's a, that's a, that will enable you to go and get investors and have that certainty that you can go out and, and build. I mean, there's a, at least another two gigawatts of hydro that it can be developed across the UK. And that is absolutely essential in the mix. I mean, I know we said it's only 2% of the overall mix, but 2% of a lot is a lot and 4% of a lot is even more. So, you know, we really need to be chipping away at the undeveloped potential of hydro which will bring that baseload generation etc that tea time peak demand it, it, that that's that's the really expensive energy is that tea time peak demand and that's why we're paying so much per unit of energy right now and, and on gas is because of that peaking plant yeah so if we've got more hydro in there, then that, that will make a big difference. I think it's also worth saying, I mean, lots, I mean, count, local authorities, there's Devon County Council have developed something called a synthetic power purchase agreement, which is basically like a contract for difference, but it means that a local authority can make a deal with community energy or hydro whoever and say okay we will agree this strike price over 15 years and we will commit to then you going out and developing renewable energy so i think there's room to negotiate with institutional anchors they're called those big institutes that have huge energy bills uh, that have got just got really big and we can start working closer with them as well so we're not just having to lobby government we're actually lobbying local authorities as well to say look we can be part of the solution here for you yeah. as well yeah yeah well also i mean in some of the events that the green finance community hub did last year particularly led by abundance investments who've been leading the call for community municipal municipal investments, they could be behind uh, hydro bonds from a local authority point of view. Why not? I'm sure they're thinking about that. But if we look at the investment side, I mean, such high upfront startup costs, infrastructure costs. Adam, last question. We don't have much time, but is um, not necessarily the community energy, but let's say the private small scale hydro. Is this a folly, the wealthy? And perhaps you can just end with talking a bit about the great work that National Trust is doing here in Cumbria in terms of some of the uh, quite a lot of hydro projects here in Cumbria. So we don't have much time. So one minute. OK, well, um, hydro is, is not just a, a folly of the rich and actually community hydro really opens the door for people to invest modest amounts um, and have a, a modest share in a project. Um, so community hydro is fantastic for bringing people into hydropower.
And as far as the National Trust in Cumbria, they have been absolutely fantastic and developed a lot of projects in Cumbria between 16 and 17, something like that. Um, small scale hydro projects are now operating and contributing to, to the national grid. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I just want to end by thanking speakers, guests so much. So Sophie Paul, thank you very much. Adam Cropper, Kate Gill-Martin, thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, sharing your great expertise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Great. Thanks. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Green Buzz podcast hosted by the Green Finance Community Hub. This is the first of many. We'll be looking at green tech, green finance, green projects at local level. We'll be talking to financiers, philanthropists, practitioners, you name it, the full gamut. But the most important thing is that our aim is to bring more green finance to local projects. Thank you very much.